A reading from Jonah 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? The word of the Lord. I did the kids' church with Kelly this morning. It's Emily. The word of the Lord came to the son of Jonah, Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. It's where this four-week journey started with the book of Jonah, that the word of the Lord came to Jonah and that he was to go to the great city of Nineveh and to preach against it because its wickedness and violence had come before the Lord. And so, too, we find ourselves at the end of this journey, hearing again, um, from the Lord and in an exchange with, with uh, Jonah at the end here. And it's, it's quite unique because so far we haven't been privy to a lot of the conversation from the Lord, but it's the Lord who enters in and sort of pleads with Jonah here towards the end. And so we had this sort of four parables as I was thinking about summarizing the way of Jonah this week. It sort of comes to us in four sort of micro parables. The first one is this one in which Jonah flees the word of the Lord and he heads towards another city. And that's alluded to in today's scripture that Emily read for us, that he said, this is why I went to that place. And in that story, what happens is that Jonah flees and in his fleeing, he saves a whole ship of sailors. 
He flees and he, he hears from, uh, confesses the name of the Lord to them on the ship. And in that confession, he brings about their salvation. They on the ship were crying out to Elohim, their God, and other gods. And both Jonah and them, using their, their technological means to try and save themselves, end up having to give up and trust in God and go to that place. For the sailors, this took the ship place of uh, casting Jonah out into the sea as Jonah confesses the name of the Lord who made it, and he goes to that place. And so here he flees and saves. In the next chapter, he sinks and saves. He saves himself in the next chapter. The Lord appoints a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah there, he prays from the position of faith that God has already acted. He gives thanks that God has done what he's going to bring about. And there Jonah's prophecy comes to pass. He is vomited up on the sea of the shore. Is that right? Shore of the sea. Sailor, I am not. Um, uh, onto dry land. I should have just stuck with the NIV. He's vomited up onto dry land. Clearly, that's easier not to mess up. Um, there he is vomited up onto dry land. And so he is, he is fleed and he sinks to the bottom. He finds himself locked into darkness. Now, that's important because this next chapter is about him really going to darkness. But the third chapter, he finally, and it, it would have made a great ending to the story. The third chapter, he listens. He goes to Nineveh. He announces that in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned in a, in a word that means um, Sodom and Gomorrah overturned, crushed and destroyed. But it's also the overturning that um, brings um, mourning to dancing. And so as the king proclaimed to them to leave the violence of their hands and for them to repent and for the animals and them to wear sackcloth and ashes. And he himself gets off his throne and says, who knows, maybe the Lord, or not the Lord, Elohim, God will have mercy on us. Jonah's word that this place will be overturned is fulfilled in that story. It is indeed overturned. Because God is who God, Jonah confesses him to be, the book of Exodus confesses him to be too as we get into that later, because God is that God, God, in the King James, I said, repents of what he was planning to do. This is a lesson. Don't hold your daughter on the mic side before you preach. It got all bent and messed up, so that's why I'm fiddling it with it so much, but you can blame Prairie for that. Um, uh, I don't, that's not connected to the sermon at all. It would have been a good sermon illustration, I'm sure, if I had thought through it, but no, no luck there. Jonah, the Lord repents of the evil that he is going to bring about to Nineveh. And we talked about uh, last week how there's this notion in which um, classical theists, which I am one of, this idea that God can't repent in turn because God is, needs to be constant in his character. If God is capable of that type of turning and manipulation, it becomes a hard God to trust. But for the narrative's sake, God sees what happens and then brings about what his purpose has brought all along. And the repentance of Nineveh had to have been a miracle in some ways. 
Jonah doesn't do anything to really make that happen. And so it's the Lord's grace that is fulfilled in that. Now, Jonah almost kind of blames him for this in chapter 4. But the Lord saw how they had turned from their evil ways. He resented and bring, did not bring upon the destruction he had threatened. This, too, is a gospel word for us. When we look at the ways in which the world is in disorder and disarray, our own souls are in disorder and disarray, the addictions and um, temptations and the uh, anger and lust and things that overflow in our own hearts but that we also see evident in the world, that God turns and doesn't bring destruction for what we, and it's, it's very weirdly intuit to us because we, we definitely see it in other people, first off. Almost everybody I know has a sense of that there are other people who shouldn't be doing what they should be doing. Um, that they're doing wrong. And then there are people who, who then look in themselves and see that they too are bound in th- doing things that they should not be doing. And so that God turns and doesn't bring this destruction is a good word for us. Jonah would have liked the book to end here. But to Jonah, this, is, uh, this seemed very wrong and he became very angry begins the fourth sort of parable of this is that is that Jonah has been successful he obeys and he overturns and now here he he um, is very angry what it said of the Ninevites is that they believed the God it's a very weird thing it's it's one that I think for those familiar with the Bible you hear in the book of Romans that it was that they believed Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness that they believed in some ways this is credited to them. And this is very, very wrong to Jonah. Now, we talked earlier about how Jonah, um, his fleeing is a bit like um, a Jew in 1930s being asked to go to Nazi Germany. Um, one reason not to go is because you will probably die if you go. Um, but the second reason, which Jonah is going to get to here, is what's worse if it doesn't turn out the way you want it? Do all the lives and the trouble that empire has caused, is justice not going to flourish there? If your message is successful and they change, does that change all the past wrong that they've done? Is it right to have gone and given that message? Now this is Jonah's argument here. This is why he seems angry and he sees great evil in what God has done. But in doing so, he takes on sort of the place of being in God, that he is the one who is God. He is the one who's able to bring this about. Now, before we get too far into the sermon, there's a, the quote on the back of the bulletin is from Martin Luther this week. Um, and it, it, Martin Luther had this great distinction between law and gospel. The law is for the proud, and the gospel is for the brokenhearted. The law is for the proud, and the gospel is for the brokenhearted. Another way of saying this is, the law is that which cuts us, and the gospel is that which heals. As I looked at this passage and thought about it this week, there's two things that came to mind. One we'll get to later, but one is it's, a, it's one of these things. Uh, Luther later says that the person who can read Scripture and properly discern the difference between law and gospel is the greatest of the theologians. 
Read through Jonah 3 and 4. There's law functioning. They overturn themselves. They've been cut by the word that Jonah has. And yet that was enabled, that repentance, their believing God, it seems to be enabled by a miracle before that, that gospel precede law. And what happens here is they're sitting in repentance. The king's question of who knows. God may relent and have compassion upon us. They're sitting there in that place under this notion of that which has cut them and brought them down. If Jonah is to be a successful missionary, as he's done several times on this, perhaps it's for him to come back and to tell them about God, to offer them this healing word, to meet them in their brokenheartedness. One of the things that that I don't want to miss is that is that, that that relationship between Elohim, this general word for God, and the Lord, um, which is the proper name for God for the Israelites, is the, the Ninevites don't know the Lord. The sailors on the ship left praising the Lord, offering sacrifices to the Lord. A conversion almost to Israel's God, or a conversion to Israel's God. We don't know what happens after they, they go away. But Nineveh is left with a question, who knows? Perhaps an Elohim out there will have compassion upon us. No sh- Jonah leaving the city, refusing to share more, is this sort of repentance to, or this sort of um, denial of what God might want to do there. He wants to leave. He wants to head out. But as we walk through it, um, I think it's interesting to listen to where is law and gospel and where are people surrendered to law and where are people surrendered to gospel. And if this works correctly, where in our own hearts and lives are we surrendered to law? Are we brought into gospel? And two, where in the world is the church which is also bound in the belly of a beast, striving by law or gospel? Both of them are necessary. I think that's the hard part of it, is, is that we need to hear both of those voices. Interestingly enough, the next sermon series, as a, as a looking forward, is going to be about um, what does it mean for the church, us today, to live in the belly of the beast? The practices and ways in which we might bring our lives about to be in the belly of the beast. So the next sermon series is more on discipleship and how we live in this moment than sort of taking out from Jonah. But it's, it's, it's connected. Um, and so Jonah is very angry here at the outside of Nineveh. Philip Carey, in his great commentary on this, I love, he said, he's a frustrated theologian. Um, he's, his, his designs for who God was have not become true of what he wants. And he prayed to the Lord, although this is not quite a good prayer, He prays to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah goes to the heart of a confession of the Israelite God. This is Um, from the book of Exodus is they're narratively learning about who God is. Uh, This is an exchange with Moses after um, uh, God has has, has should have 
and, and promised or threatened to wipe out the Israelites. You can see the relationship here. God had threatened to wipe out the Israelites, and in the revelation afterwards, he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The Israelites who we had just rescued, he had brought them out into the wilderness. They had worshipped a golden calf in his place. And God and Moses go to the mountain, and God says, why don't we make a new nation out of you? And Moses um, calls him towards who God is, calls him towards this. And this is where the Jews discover that this is whom their God is. Now, what's amazing about Jonah is he is this Israelite. He is this one. He's a stand-in for Israel in the story. And what he seems to be saying is, that which you've done for us, you should not do for other nations. That which you've offered your people, the elect, should not be done for other people. What I think is almost funny is like, we know that you're like this, but we want to keep it a secret. Um, He doesn't want to bring about the truth of who the Lord is. And so too we find ourselves in that situation, I think, at times. The second thing that I think... um, came to me as I was reading through this. The, Jonah, calling it like a parable in form or four parables, means that you're never done exploring it. You can always keep reading it and finding new things. Um, there's a great saying from one of the ancient philosophers who says, you never step in the same river twice. Um, with Jonah, you never step into it twice. You come back to the text, but the, the river has changed. You've changed. Things have moved through. And so different things come about each time you get into the story of Jonah. But what became more challenging for me this time walking through the story of Jonah is how much he's taken the place of a, of a despiser of being, a despiser of creation. Twice, as we go through this next passages, he's going to want to choose non-existence over existence. He asks for death instead of living. And this, at least for me in my life, during times in which I think I'm so right and so correct, becomes an honest temptation. Or even more, um, which I think is harder for people to admit, in times of depression, for some reason, we end up in the place that Jonah's in. would be better for me not to be at all if this is the way the world runs. Everybody else would be fine. And there's a bit of a, uh, with Jonah and with ourselves, is a bit of a, I'll show them in that. We meet our own existential dread and tiredness with the same sort of, it would be better for me to be dead than to see what God is doing, his faithfulness to others. What's noticeably also in that passage is that there was this call towards justice at the end of it, that God, um, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And then this saying, which is complex, we could talk about another time, we did in the past, but he punishes the children and their children for their sins to the third and fourth generation. What is bound in this is that God is a God of justice, which becomes a balance with this slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, and maintaining love. And one of the things you can think about in the language is 
Love is maintained for thousands of generations, but the justice is only going to the third and fourth generation. That in some sense, the gospel here is stronger than the, than the law, is that when people sin, that goes on, but it has its end. But when we talk about a God who is abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love, it goes to the thousands, not just to the third and fourth generation. But that's the tie that God is in, or that, that, that God has with humanity, uh, is that God is this God who sees that disorder and dysfunction, and yet forgives, but doesn't erase. As Christians, we see this, this sort of fulfilled in the cross. Last week, um, I talked about that, that the cross is that eternal repentance of God, us not getting what we deserve us being absolved from what we've done wrong. That God, because God is a God of justice, needs to take that someplace. What happens is it goes into the very heart of God. God, in his eternal plan, elected Jesus Christ to go to the cross to take that justice. And so it is there we are forgiven it as well. But Jonah is frustrated with God. As I said, the next verse, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. To see what is going on there. To take my soul away. To proclaim that that non-existence is better than existence at all. Now, what's amazing about this, I think, is is that God pleads with him. If you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, there's one son, he comes back from living wild with the father's wealth, and he comes back to the house, and the father um, uh, offers up the fattened calf, invites him back in the family, clothes him, and is with him. But when that son left, the father gave him half the estate, and he was gone. No conversation recorded for us, no pleading to stay, no like, hey, son, you know, go, but these roads just lead to gutters, and we'll see you in a little bit. And we'll make you pay when you come back, which is the way that most parents would handle that. Um, uh, you're going to go into error and, and uh, misfortune, and we'll see you soon, and we'll laugh. Father does none of that. The son comes back, and they rejoice together. But what's so amazing about the story is that the elder son, one who remains, refuses to go into the party that happens when dead people come back to life. That which is Nineveh was about to be destroyed and is now waiting to hear gospel. Jonah refuses to go in. But what we see in the story of the prodigal is that the father leaves the house to plead with the son who chooses not to enter into the good party that God is throwing for those who come back from death to life. Jonah choosing non-existence outside of Nineveh rather than rejoicing in the God who turns mourning into dancing, needs to be pleaded with and instructed. When I first heard it explained this way, the the teacher explaining it, he said, it's almost as if the best cure for a sinful life is a sinful life. You will eventually come home. But if you leave the house in pride, if you refuse to enter what God is doing, if you refuse to go into that place, God will plead with you. You want to leave to go into the far country and go into wild living? You'll be back. 
because the goodness of your house that you left will call you back home. But you want to take the spot of knowing better than God in the parable of the Father, knowing better than the Father. Somebody needs to go outside the city, outside the party, and plead with you to come back in. Because to say that what was dead coming back to life doesn't deserve to happen is a great danger. And one of the reasons I think it's a great danger is because it's your own death in doing it. Jonah clearly names that for us. I would rather be dead. It's his own non-existence he's hoping for and seeing things turn around. It's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place in, in the surgery of, I think, uh, for me, it's the surgery of my own soul that goes through this in, this, in this way in which we choose not to enter in to the God who wants to turn things around. As Jonah and Israel at this time exists in the belly of the beast with that challenges, so too do we, I've said, as the church in 24th century America, as the church always exists waiting a city that is to come, What's amazing or challenging about that is I look at my own list of things I would change about the world. And sometimes I would prefer that dead things stay dead and then not enter into the party. And what I think, it's challenging with Jonah because I think you can preach this. One of the commentaries I read preached this as like that we should let go of those things. But that's not the point. Nineveh has properly stopped the violence of their hands. They've changed. They've been overturned. It's when that happens, and we still choose to be outside. You don't trade the standards upon which God has laid upon the church to be in the world in the belly of the beast. You don't say it's better if we just get rid of these things. But when the message is received and things change, you want to stay outside. Great danger lies there. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord enters like the father with the son pleading the prodigal. Is it right for you to be angry? If you've ever been with a therapist, it's, this, is, this is a question that they ask you, and you're like, okay, appointment's over. I'm going to go home and not talk about this anymore. Um, is it right for you to be angry? Damn straight it is. I'm out of here. Um, uh, why would you ask such an important and dangerous question at this time? Um, I just told you why I was so angry is probably where this comes from. Jonah just told the Lord why he is so angry. And yet the Lord patiently asked for him, is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah ends the conversation. Jonah ends this point, but the Lord is going to start the conversation again through a different way. Jonah goes and sits outside the city at the place east of the city. Then he made himself a shelter and sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Let's go back to that law and gospel thing a little bit. He goes and sits outside the city, and this is, we do this, um, we could use the, the story of the prodigal again as an example is to say, you brought the person back into the house, wait till they put it back into disrepair and unable to do. And we love being proved right, um, as almost if that's a virtue. Um, see, I told you this was going to happen. Yeah, but that didn't help. Um, 
it didn't do anything. Um, and, and so much so Jonah goes outside the city to, to sort of sit there and watch and be the judge himself. The city's left in sackcloth with the animals not eating or drinking and fasting as well. And Jonah sits out there to see what is going to happen. He goes to the place outside of the city and waits. Then the Lord God provided, he provides three things in a row. He provides a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade over his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. It's kind of in the middle of these two. Jonah's angry at the end, angry at the beginning of chapter 4. And in the middle, he has great joy over this plant that has grown up over him. And the Lord appointed this plant, and I love the way that it said, for shade for his head to ease his discomfort. I think one of the things that Israel were learning about in this parable of being elect and that the church learns from being elect by God is that we aren't much better than the nations, but that God will stick through us. Nineveh disappears. The Babylonians that the uh, church, the Israelites hearing this, disappears. The Rome, the first beast, Rome, the first beast that the church found itself in, disappears. And yet God sustains with those who elects, not because they seem to be doing better, but that's because what happens when God binds himself to a people. And it is for the elect to be a blessing to the other nations, not to be elect in and of themselves. This goes back to the Abrahamic blessing. I will bless you so that you will bless others. Israel is meant to be this, this place at which other people stream to. The church is meant to be the salt of the earth, the light, a city on a hill that brings forth light to everyone. God continues to sustain us. He, he gives us leafy plants to ease our discomfort. And we take great joy in them, even though we had nothing to do with them. And he made it grow up over, uh, and Jonah was very happy about the plant. But the next, at the next dawn, the next day, God provided, a second thing God provides, a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. What's going on as God is, is instructing Jonah here. When the sun rose, God provided the third thing, a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head, said he grew faint. The shade is one of the promises that the Lord provides the people, that God will shade his people. But God is showing Jonah in this act what, what it means for God to provide, and he wanted to die again. He said, it would be better for me than to die than to live. We end up in these places, as I said the first time, for, for that we don't enter, want to enter the party. Here, we can enter into it, into our fascination with our own suffering. Um, Jonah wants to be the victim here. He wants to say that it's better for me to die than to live as this comes. And so God enters back into conversation with Jonah. So next week you come back to therapy. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Um, the conversation is picked up where it left off. Is it right for you to be angry about that plant? 
Is it good for your soul to exist in anger? Is it good for you to sit in the position of God and decide what deserves to be and not to be? Is that what is right for you? Jonah still in this place of choosing non-existence over existence. Choosing to say that things deserve not to be. Again, I, we're Jonah. Um, uh, says, or at times we're Jonah. It is, and I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. Jonah proclaims that it is right for him to feel in such a way. He has his soul to die within him. But the Lord draws out the meaning of what he's instructed with the plant for Jonah. You have grown concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it or grow it. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? This is interesting how, how God brings Jonah, tries to bring Jonah back around. The, the, this story ends with this question, so we don't know what happens um, to Jonah. We don't know if he goes back to Nineveh. It ends with a question, I mean, most of you are better readers than I am, because it ends with a question because it's a question it's asking us. <laughs> uh, it's not important how it ended with Jonah. It's important how you will respond to the question that God is asking you. How the church or Israel respond to the question as it's being stated. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? He doesn't say, look, you shouldn't have had concern for the plant. You were properly concerned about it, and now it's gone. But because you have concern over something you didn't plant, didn't build, didn't tend to, the, going back to that obsession with technology, I think Jonah's killing, that's something, a technology that you didn't even bring about. It was an organic life form. Because you know what pity is. You will know what it's like to care for something. Should I not also care for the great city of Nineveh. We're on the same side in caring. It's very short-sighted. <laughs> a plant that you did not plant, that grew up overnight and is gone in a day. You're angry about that. Understand that. But so too I have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people. And, and the word he uses is, is Aram, which is to say that there are 120,000 souls in that city. 120,000 who have clothed themselves in sackcloth. A king who has left his throne and cried out, who knows? Those who have left their ways of violence and destruction. A miracle has happened in that place. Shouldn't I have concern for that place? And here, they're so lost they don't know right from left. Somebody instruct them in the path in which they are to go. The law is for the proud-hearted, but the gospel is for uh, the broken-hearted. Should somebody not come and teach them the way between the right and the left? Should I not instruct them in the way that they should go? And in the point at which this is a serious sermon, but we're supposed to laugh, and also many animals. Um, 
God's concern for the whole of creation. In the, in the psalm that, uh, who read the psalm this morning, Shelley? Uh, God's concern for everything that God has, somebody did. Uh, God has great compassion for all of this. So the question at the end is, is what will we do? Will we choose to say that dead things don't deserve to come back to life? That the character of God is one of abounding in compassion and love. Some things just don't deserve pity. Or will we enter in to what God is doing in overturning things? Will be a witness and a sign to God's overturning of the world? Will we allow God to overturn that which is our own destruction inside ourselves? Sometimes it's easier to rejoice with other people than it is with our own wins. Um, I don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> um, I think pastors get into it. We love you guys. It's harder for us to win with our own selves. Uh, but I'm sure that's a common concern to say that, like, I'll enter into other people's parties, but whatever life you bring back to me, God, let's not make a big deal out of it. Let's not do the thing. And how important it is to hear that God has concern for that. And we're called to enter into the place where people don't know their right from left. And so, too, we end uh, with the, um, uh, the verse that we've, we've used, which in Jesus says that a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The image we used to capture that, it, it became clear to me that as a sign, it's a weird sign because it's not a presence, it's an absence. Jonah was gone three days, not present as a sign. The Lord descends to the realm of the dead, and it's a presence we don't see. It's an absence, and you notice the absence, so it's there. So too the sign that we have been given from Christ is in that way. What comes of this in the book of Romans is that faith is a miracle. Faith is the calling into existence of things that didn't exist. If we think we're great because we're Christian or because we have faith or because we haven't figured out, we're doing it wrong. <laughs> this is why Luther thought every sermon needed some law in it so that we could not get to that. And every sermon needed the gospel so that we could be healed from that striking. And so, too, that the Apostle Paul ends this, tri this teaching in the book of Romans about the fate of Israel as the church seems to be um, hearing the good news of what Jesus has done. But for Paul, its deepest struggle is that Israel is not. And he goes through this 9 through 11, the part of Romans that nobody reads, this agonizing journey of trying to figure out what that means. But he ends with this idea that I don't know. <laughs> he writes it in a beautiful way. Oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For him and through him and for him are all things. God be the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray.
God, you have asked us in the book of Jonah, is it right for you to have pity on others? And pity on the dead places within our own hearts, pity on the dead places we see in the world, pity on those places in which we would prefer to not exist at all. So much so that when we see you relenting there, we ask for non-existence. We ask for nothing. But it is for Israel and the church to be instructed by this story. To when asked, say, that we begrudgingly will not sit outside the camp. We went there. We are Jonah. But as you come and ask us, is it right for us to be angry? Is it right for us to choose to go outside and wait for the destruction of others? You are attempting to rouse us as your church and as your people and as individuals to go back to the place at which we left so that we don't live in law that we find the good news of your gospel waiting there. We teach it, we bring it, we hear it in our own souls, and we live out of it. Never surprised to see the Lord overturning things.